Welcome back to Scripps Talks. We have Ann Saker joining us today from Cincinnati. Ann, thank you for joining us. I am so delighted to be with you, Bob. Thank you so much. And I want you to talk a little bit with our listeners about what has happened in your life as far as how you are covering the news of the day, given the new reality. You know, a reporter dreams of a, of a global story with local reach all the time. I mean, you dream of the big story, however you define it. And you never, and you assume that you'll be in the middle of a newsroom where everything's going to be busy and there's lots of noise and chaos and attention. And I mean, that's how it's always worked before. This is a story unlike anything I have ever covered in 38 years as a professional. Unlike many other stories, it is really a science and health-driven story. And you can throw as much political polemic at it as you like. But the fact of the matter is it slides right off of the math and the calculations and the clinical trial results. So uh, it's fascinating to me that here I am covering this giant global story from my kitchen table. It's the story, the story of a lifetime that I can't leave my house to cover. So there are tremendous numbers of bits of cognitive dissonance that I'm trying to process every day professionally as well as personally to try and wrap my head around how do I best serve our readers in this incredibly confusing time that also includes a rather significant disintegration of the news industry. And those things are intimately related to each other. There are times I feel numb, and there are times when I feel this weird exhilaration, and then times I just kind of scratch my head and say, I have no idea where this is going. It is that sense of not knowing where things are going that I think is now a a kind of a universal experience for for everybody on this planet, and that seems quite, quite stunning. No one can blame any political leader for saying, let's get back to where things were before, because then we were all happy. Clearly, this pandemic has shown that that was not the case, that we had profound, deep, fundamental problems in our healthcare delivery system, in our economic structure, in our political structure, and these are all getting exposed. But because we're so bored of sitting at home, We're not thinking about that over the long term. We're thinking about, I want to go out to Fuddruckers and have a hamburger, period. I can get behind that, but at the same time, if you have the director of the CDC telling the Washington Post that the surge we're going to have this coming winter will be far worse than what we've had now, and we have 45,000 deaths inside six weeks, wow. (laughs) I can't imagine what that's going to be like. This appears to be um, a long-time visitor to this planet. We are just a fertile field for this virus. It made the jump to humans, and now it's uh, having a party. And it's, it's devastating, absolutely devastating. And it is, of course, devastating for the people who die of COVID, the people who have terrible bouts with COVID, the people who are going to have long-term health effects from this virus. I've been thinking about that the last week. You know, we have no idea what this particular virus is going to do to us long term. It's only been around for barely five months. Common cold is a coronavirus, and it does not, as far as we know, cause long-term damage. 
but maybe this one does. And we don't know that yet. To me, the medicine and the science of all of this is just so devastatingly interesting. But on the one hand, it's now we're actually seeing the abstract become concrete before our very eyes every day. I did a story this week about a family that is going to bury its patriarch on Saturday. Now, he didn't die of COVID-19. He had a stroke. And he was in a couple of hospitals and a couple of rehab facilities. But clearly, he, was ha- he had a stroke at just about the time that visitors were prohibited from seeing people at hospitals. He spent the last few weeks of his life alone in a hospital, people caring for him. But uh, his family could only see him through video calls and talk to him. And they finally brought him home, and he died last Saturday. And he's not going to be counted as a COVID death, obviously. But he's a casualty nonetheless, because our system changed so radically. I think we're going to have lots and lots and lots of stories like that for the next two years. People will die of other things, but one of the contributing factors may be the changes that occurred in healthcare because of this pandemic. Well, and certainly, you know, the the reality of people being alone in these final moments of their their life. I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously horrible for them, but it's also very difficult for their families. Oh, my God. And my mother is 93, fortunately in excellent health, lives on her own, still drives, doing great. But of course, you know, I, I dread these things can turn around in a heartbeat. And if the wrong person sneezes or coughs on her and she ends up in intensive care at Westchester Hospital, it makes me sick to my stomach to think that I can commute. I would only be able to communicate with her through Skype which she doesn't understand. So <laughs> I got some skin in this game. Well, that's, so, you know, that's, that is something about this virus that is so interesting and compelling, I think, as a journalism experience, because as you said, your industry is on its knees. And yeah. meanwhile, it's also being asked to serve the public while journalists are worried about furloughs and cuts yep. they have to somehow put that aside to cover the story what's that been like for you i will tell you that i know that i am exceedingly fortunate i am a widow with a cat i don't have to worry about anybody else except myself and my mom of course i live alone here's the thing that i see bob and that is this you know every time there's breaking when there's big breaking news there is no place in the world to be than in the newsroom it's energizing it's exciting things are going on the news is happening you're producing it putting it out there and it's great but we can't do that with this story so we're home and on the one hand i am sad that i can't commiserate with my friends over coffee or lunch or a walk or something like that on the other hand i'm kind of glad i don't have that low-level static in my head right now because I really do need to give most of my brain cells to a reading public that really does need us right now. So I'm kind of, you know, and I don't have to homeschool children or care for a spouse or anything like that. I am in a very good situation. It's not great that here I am. I was kind of proud that I actually filed for unemployment for the very first time in my life last week and I had no problem and the check came two days later and but I was lucky there are people who depend on that check way more than I do 
who are struggling to get that so they can put food on the table for their children. I don't think we are even remotely beginning to peel back what's going on in our society right now. That's a huge frustration for me and I'm sure for many other journalists is that they know the bigger story is out there, but we can't get to it right now. So we're going to nibble away at it, you know, as long as we survive. I've been joking with people saying, you know, I expect to be laid off at the end of June. I hope I'm joking, but we're in a tough situation. You know, advertising revenue, as you know, Bob, had been draining quite considerably rapidly the last year. You know, our one bedrock was print display advertising. And that just started falling through the cracks last year. And then, of course, beginning of this year, things were going real south real fast. And we've been doing very well on attracting subscriptions and even retaining subscribers, which is great. But I don't know how many subscribers I'm going to have to attract this year to sustain my salary. And we're not putting it in those terms yet. But I don't know where we're going to go from here, Bob. I really don't. I was going to check and see where uh, Gannett's stock was while, while, uh, while we're talking here. But that's it's scary. It's scary. That's the bottom line. But I'm in a lifelong habit of kind of deadening that worry to get the work done. Do you think that experiencing that worry makes you a more empathetic reporter? Oh, I think so. Absolutely, I think so. And it's, uh, it, you know, it's not... Anything like, oh, we're, done, we're up to 77 cents a share. That's great. <laughs> we were under 65 cents last week. So, hmm, interesting. I think it does make, it make me empathetic, although clearly the people we're defining as essential workers, those are the folks who are, I, those are the stories we need to tell. And we're trying desperately to tell those because those are the ones who are making maybe $15 an hour with no health insurance. No paid time off for sickness, no family leave. I think even in our circumstance, even in our relative circumstances, they are knowing a life I will not know. So it's, I think it does help. It builds skills. But again, being, you know, when you're doing, doing everything from your kitchen table, it's hard. Although tomorrow, I'm very excited about this. A colleague of mine, Sam Green, and I are going out with some caregivers, social workers from a uh, mental health agency here that deals with uh, the poorest families in Cincinnati. They've got like school and behavioral health care and mental health care. And every week of this pandemic on Mondays and Thursdays, a team of people has been going out to maybe, you know, 25 or 30 kids to their homes and leaving stuff on the porch like food and schoolwork and maybe some toys or puzzles or things like that. And they get to see that they, they may be, you know, 15 feet from each other, but at least they can wave and they can, they can put eyes on the kid and on the family and see how they're doing. And we're going to go out and shoot that tomorrow. We're going to go in a convoy, but I'm excited to see what that looks like. I want to, that's my first opportunity to really see how uh, folks are struggling through this. Who would have ever thought a, a bagger at Kroger's would be an essential worker? A hero. A hero. A hero. You know, and a lot of them are developmentally disabled too. So, you know, they are, I mean, I just, I want to cry. I want to hug them <laughs> if I could, because they are just amazing and they just come to work no matter what. And, uh, you know, I really try and like super over tip everybody that I come in contact with because God love them, you know, thanks for doing this. 
And, you know, journalists are considered essential workers, too. But believe me, I am living the soft life compared to a bagger at Kroger. You and uh, a group of your colleagues at the Inquirer have been covering very effectively a different medical crisis, uh, an, an epidemic, not a pandemic, but the opioid epidemic. And yes. I'm, I'm wondering two things. One, what's going on with opioids right now? And number two, right. what, what lessons apply to covering a pandemic when, you, when you've been covering an epidemic? You know, these are, you know, I hate to say this term because it really is kind of cliched, but they're really kind of apples and oranges. There is a uh, public health official here in Cincinnati, uh, Odell Owens, who has been ringing the bell about the opioid epidemic through this pandemic, you know, reminding people that just because you're sheltering at home doesn't mean your addiction issues go away. And so my colleague, Terry DeMio, who was the leader on our Pulitzer winning project in uh, 2017, she's actually working at this very moment on a project on a, on a sort of larger story about, you know, how, how is the epidemic going in, in these situations? And one thing we are learning is that this massive and rapid shift from sort of office-based care to telemedicine is actually providing tremendous benefit to people with behavioral and mental health issues because you don't have to leave home. You don't have to go anywhere. And you can just call the doc, make an appointment. You can talk to the doc over the phone. It's like a house call. And what I'm hearing from mental health providers, although not specifically the opioid care providers, what I am hearing is that they're hearing from more patients. The patients are showing up for appointments. They are becoming um, compliant on their medication. So uh, I have talked to some, I have talked to one um, treatment provider in opioid care who did say he's very concerned we're going to have a, you know, once we, the shutdown opens up, we're going to have a tremendous explosion of maybe overdoses and hospitalizations, which is possible. The, the fact of the matter is we just don't know. That's one thing Terry is exploring here is where, where are we now with this? Because if you are addicted to fentanyl or heroin, that did not stop with the stay-at-home order. I guess the images we see of, have seen the tragic images of families, of parents, you know, overdosing in the front seat of a car with their kids in the back seat. Those things are probably still happening, but perhaps not in that same exact medium of a vehicle. Right. Well, and again, this is where the the journalism issue overlaps. Uh, You know, there, there would have been a time, maybe five years ago, when we would not have taken Terry off the opioid, we would have kept her on that throughout this because we would have had enough bodies to throw at this. But this has been all hands to the pump for six weeks. So a lot of things that we would be normally watching uh, have kind of gone to ground because we're just so wretchedly short-staffed. I don't know where I saw this. It was probably on Twitter. Someone remarking about how this is a golden age for sleaze bags because there just are not enough journalists keeping an eye on who's handling the public purse. The same issue applies here is that we just don't have the people who've devoted their careers and their lives to studying medicine and healthcare uh, to throw at this problem. Although there's been, I'm sure you've seen too, there's been phenomenal journalism done through this whole thing. Just amazing work. Uh, and it's been mainly by the large, you know, the Times and the Post and such, but you know, I've seen pocket, you know, the Seattle Times has been killing it, the Houston paper's been killing it. 
The Raleigh paper's been killing it. The Oregonian. I mean, there's lots of places where there's just great journalism going on despite all of this. Journalists as a tribe rises to the occasion in an amazing way. And we're seeing that with our student journalists. As a matter of fact, you mentioned, oh, no doubt. You mentioned the Post, but let's talk about the OU Post, which you were part of yeah. back when you were yes, a student. Indeed. They are proving to be an important resource for all the the diaspora of bobcats who are not here anymore. Nice. I love so that. Maybe you could talk just a, a bit about what your college experience was like and and also what advice you would give to college students who are studying journalism in this moment in history. I wish I had been more mindful of my college experience. I don't think you ever can possibly be that mindful when you're 20, when you're 18 to 21. How can you possibly be mindful? It's also overwhelming. I came into journalism school knowing I was going to do this. And so I was like a rocket. I ran through the entire course book as quickly as I could because I wanted to get out here and start doing it. OU was a place that was like, okay, go for it. Have fun. Knock yourself out. Go crazy. And you know, people like Roger Bennett and Drew Everts and Guido Stemple and, you know, all the, the legacy and Ralph Izzard, our dear friend Ralph Izzard. I mean, there's just been this legacy of phenomenal people who have not just a working background, but an academic background in this discipline. And they prepared us very well. And I ran out into the world, although I will tell you that I remember one class, I was probably a junior or a senior, and I was just on fire and ready to go. And one of the professors brought in at the time, a recently retired reporter whose name I remember. He was like a Cleveland Plain Dealer reporter or somebody like that who covered the legislature for 57,000 years or something. And I remember him coming into the room and saying, don't do this work. Do not do this. It's already dead. <laughs> and I remember thinking, what? <laughs> and of course, I promptly forgot that because, well, what does he know? He's an old geezer getting out. What does he care? He's just jealous because we're young and strong. Here's what I would say to young journalists. It is a dark and scary world out here, way more so than it was when I got out in 1981, when all we had to worry about was TV and radio and the beginnings of cable. Now, a young journalism student has to know podcasting and video producing and photo gallery production, not just all the little basics that I learned about making sure everybody's name was spelled correctly, but you have to have just this gigantic toolkit to be a functioning member and to, and to get into the business. And it's really hard. But I will say this. If you burn to do it, you will do it. And you will find an audience for the things that you have to say. So I know that sounds ridiculously romantic. It's not practical in the least. I can't tell you where the, where the work is. But I think if you're coming out of journalism school now into a pandemic – and if, for example, you wanted to cover health care or law enforcement or anything, you're not going to write about nothing for the next 10 years, except it's all going to come through the prism of the pandemic. So get smart about that. The other thing I would say, especially to students who haven't graduated yet, and I always rolled my eyes when teachers said this, but it is so more true now than it was 40 years ago, you need to know another language. You absolutely need to know another language. If it's an American Sign Language, okay, that's fine. But you really have to have a language, just conversational fluency, so you can go do. I wish I could. I wish I had my Spanish that I had at OU because that's where the story is right now. Is in our Latino communities here. 
that has happened to me many, many, many times. My greatest regret of college was not powering through and getting four years of college Spanish. And the other thing is, one thing I will tell people, because I will smack you if I hear you say this, you may not say, I got into journalism because I couldn't do math. Because that no longer applies. You absolutely must be able to do an Excel spreadsheet. You don't have to be a CPA, but you need to know how to run one. That's where so much journalism is coming from now, is databases and number crunching. That's the two skills you need to have. And if you don't have them at graduation, you know, go pick up a course somewhere or plant yourself in a Spanish-speaking community and pick it up or do something like that because those are two things I wish I had now. That's what I would say, Bob. You've got to have another language and not just a, a spoken language, but you need to know the language of math or specifically of Excel spreadsheets. Part of the drain out of our newsroom in the last 10 years have been people, younger, younger reporters and older reporters who had, you know, some of these extra skills. If I were a hiring editor now, I would put all additional language speakers at the top of the pile, no matter what, because sometimes you just need that skill. If I know I need to plug a hole, that's a skill I have to have. I don't care if you want to speak, you know, Spanish obviously is optimum and so is, you know, Arabic or Mandarin, but whatever language makes your heart sing, you need to have that just as necessary. So I, I want to wrap this up with a, a real pivot of a question, and that is, okay. I, I want you to tell us about your assistant there who we, we enjoy seeing on Facebook. So, so tell, <laughs> introduce us to your assistant. This kind of got to be, it's almost bigger than me now. I, I know now if I don't do this on Saturday mornings, I, I get static from people, but I have a gorgeous orange tabby that I rescued almost three years ago. He's about a medium hair. He's not like super long hair, but he has a beautiful plume of a tail and brought him home. He would sit right next to me as I was typing and was clearly interested in what I was doing. And so I figured he was a probably a cat journalist in a previous life. And so I uh, hired him as the chief correspondent of the Walnut Hills Bureau for Catterday Press International. Every Saturday morning, I post a picture on Facebook on my personal page, which is public, so you can see him, of uh, George uh, doing committing some kind of journalism. And sometimes it's studying birds out the window, and sometimes it is watching me at the computer. And like most cats, he has way more personality than people give him credit for. You know, dog lovers are like, ah, cats, they suck. But actually, this cat does not suck at all, and he's a lot of fun. He's gotten so accustomed to me being in the house now that the other day I laced up my shoes to go outside and fill the bird feeder. I was going to be gone like 10 seconds. And he walked over and he sat in front of me and he looked at my shoes and he looked me in the eye and said, like, what's up with this? (laughs) And I I really did have to leave the door open so he could see that I was just going to go outside and fill the bird feeder and come back. So I think he likes me too, which is really nice. Well, is he more of a, a reporter or a supervising editor, would you say? Well, no, I am his bureau manager, so I'm his supervisor, uh, but but he is the he is the poet, he is the uh, the artist, you know, he observes the world and offers his insights. He really only focuses on cat news. So this pandemic that humans are having, that doesn't even, that's not even on his list. That Cats are not interested in that. Cats are interested in all the humans that are underfoot right now, 
But why they're home, they don't care. <laughs> so he's just interested in cat news. I did think of one more question I want to ask you, and then I'll let okay. you let you go. And that is the group of Bobcats from your era. They, yeah. they the posties from that era. They seem to be quite a tribe within a tribe <laughs> within another tribe. You know that that group seems to have really bonded. And I wonder if you uh, just want to say something about what that group means to you. Working at the post, day in and day out, night in and night out, there was a core group of us, probably 10 or 12, a year, maybe a year or two ahead of us, a year or two behind us, but there was a core group of us that just felt, you know, we had, we were sort of the Watergate generation. We were on fire for this work. We were going to come out and change the world with our journalism. And we stayed profoundly connected to each other because we were posties, because most of us were from Ohio, because most of us stayed in journalism for much of our careers. So we stayed connected so much so that I'm going to tell you this story only because it will illustrate my point, And that is this. Almost 10 years ago, my husband of nearly 15 years died of a heart attack quite suddenly. And we were out in Oregon. And uh, my sister here in Cincinnati agreed to have like a little memorial service at her house where we could invite my husband's family and my family. And I kind of threw it open to all my pals. Said, we're going to do this on this Sunday afternoon. If you could meet us, we would love to have you here. Eight of my college classmates came from, I kid you not, all over the country for this three-hour event at my sister's house. That is a bond that speaks to the love that OU puts in all of us. I am just so grateful to have this group of friends. We've all been in touch. We've done a couple of group phone calls. We've spent New Year's Eve together. Even now, you know, now as we are becoming, I can't hard believe, grandparents, I am just, I'm so tremendously grateful that this is the gift that I got from Ohio University. Ann Saker, thank you so much for being on this podcast. I feel like there's a lot more to say. Maybe we'll do a follow-up when, when all the dust goes <laughs> away. All, yes, I'd be delighted, Bob, anytime. And again, once again, from the bottom of my heart, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the liberty of speaking for my class. I thank you so much for everything that you've given to Ohio University and to all the journalists who are out there who uh, have your touch on them. And we really appreciate everything that you have done for all of us. So thank you for that. And, you know... Pharisees. Well, it's it's been an amazing honor and privilege, and uh, oh. I'm sorry we didn't get yeah. our time at OU didn't overlap, but it has been great to get to know you, and I'm a great admirer totally. of your work and it. your and your writing. You're a very gifted writer, so congratulations. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much. It's an honor to get to still get to do it. So thank you. Best of luck, and uh, we'll be in touch. I'll see you in Athens one day soon.